Welcome to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the PulpNet, your link to the online world of the Pulp Magazines for over 25 years. Learn more about the Pulp Magazines through articles, blogs, bibliographies, links, over 100 episodes of this podcast, and much more, at thepulp.net. In this Pulp Event Podcast, artist and pulp art historian David Saunders, examines the career of J. Allen St. John, a master of fantasy art. The presentation was part of HerbFest 2023, which was held in conjunction with PulpFest. This podcast was recorded on August 4th at PulpFest 2023 in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Welcome, everybody, and I mean it. Thanks for coming to hear about the life and art of J. Allen St. John, a famous American artist who's widely beloved for his illustrations of the novels of Edgar Rice Burroughs. It's always a challenge for an artist to illustrate a fictional character, but in this instance the author genuinely appreciated this particular illustrator's work. And that's saying a lot because Edgar Rice Burroughs happened to be the sort of control freak that made no secret of his contempt for the efforts of other artists to depict the characters in his novels. For instance, Burroughs disapproved of this earliest depiction of Tarzan by Clinton P.T., as well as this 1915 dust jacket by N.C. Wyeth. When Wyeth offered to sell Burroughs this painting for $200, the author told him, well, if you like the painting that much, you'd better keep it. (laughs) So the top illustrator of Burroughs' fiction was J. Allen St. John. He was, along with that claim to fame, was also a very influential art teacher and just an influential uh, artist. His most famous disciples included Frank Frazetta and Roy Krenkel. Throughout his life, J. Allen St. John was celebrated as the father of American 20th century fantasy art. So let's find out more about this guy. James Allen St. John was born October 1st, 1872 in Chicago, and throughout his life, he was called Jim. His father was uh, Josephseph Allen St. John. He was born 41 years earlier in 1831 in East Hubbardston, Vermont. And uh, six years later, his family moved, resettled to Janesville, Wisconsin, and they were among the region's first settlers. They cleared the land and worked a farm, and eventually they sent Josephus to college, where he studied medicine and became a very successful doctor. The artist's mother, Susan Healy, was born in 1834 in Ireland. Her father, Hilliard Healy, was born in 1800, and I mention him because He was a portrait painter and a graduate of the famous Dublin Trinity College. And when the family moved to America in 1837, they also settled in Janesville, Wisconsin, where they also cleared land and worked as farmers. So Jane Healy was taught how to paint by her father, who was a professional portrait artist. But she really yearned for professional academic training, which you can imagine is something to yearn for in 1837 in settling a new territory in Wisconsin. In 1859, her older brother, his wife was Eliza St. John, and um, this seemed like a good enough idea, so uh, Josephus decided to marry Susan Healy, so they got married right afterwards. So the, the, the two um, brothers and sisters married each other from the, uh, these two families. In 1869, 
Um, don't you all think of uh, J. Allen St. John as being someone sort of from our childhood or something like that? But this is really ancient stuff that we're talking about. These are his actual parents, you know. So in 1869, they moved to Chicago and lived um, on 22nd Street, where Josephus established his uh, private medical practice while his wife um, attended the Art Institute of Chicago, where she got the academic training she'd always wanted. Susan Healy St. John was really a free spirit, and she loved her art school, going to school there, and the company of all these bohemian artists. And the schools were pretty much divided, uh, male and female, with a few exceptions. But uh, some of the other art students that she met at school, she invited to come live with them at the house. So it was uh, like a a bohemian sort of uh, house. In 1872, she was uh, now the age of 38, Susan Healy St. John gave birth to her only child, James Allen St. John, in Chicago. And according to the artist, quote, my first recollections are of my mother's art studio and of the magic whale, the eyes of the portraits followed me as I walked around the place. In 1880, his mother left his father and moved to Paris to study at the Ecole de Beaux-Arts, and she brought along with her her eight-year-old son. So they lived in Europe for three years where they visited all the great museums and um, the, the, her son later said this was where he first realized that he really wanted to become a great painter himself. In 1883, at the age of 11, he and his mother left Paris and moved to New York City, where she continued her studies at the National Academy of Design. Her ever-faithful husband closed his practice in Chicago and moved to join them in Manhattan, where they lived in this townhouse on East 69th Street. The doctor opened a new medical practice, and um, the son went to public school in New York. By 1887, his mother had completed all of her training, which is like 30 year, uh, 40 years of it. <laughs> That's a lot of training. And she opened her own uh, professional portrait studio in the same townhouse. In 1888, James Allen St. John quit school after finishing the eighth grade. Although his family was wealthy enough to send him on to high school or prep school and on to college, he insisted on following his mother's artistic lifestyle. And when his father offered to set him up in business at a brokerage firm, he rejected the plan and said he would refuse to ever join the workforce. In 1888, at the age of 16, J. Allen St. John left New York City and moved to live in Southern California with his uncle and aunt, who was, again, like his mother's brother and his father's sister (laughs) and they had three kids and they lived on a 2,000 acre grain and livestock ranch in San Joaquin Valley. While he was in California he studied uh, with uh, one of his mother's acquaintances from the Ecole de Beaux-Arts named Eugene Torrey who began to teach him in private classes um, landscape painting. In 1891 at the age of 19 J. Allen St. John returned to New York City to live with his parents in their townhouse and to study with the famous William Merritt Chase, the Impressionist who was himself uh, at that point um, 50 years old at the uh, Art Students League. You can actually see James J. Allen St. John in this photograph. He's the tall person um, in the center and his, his face is right in front of a little nude um, model standing in the back. If you look at his face and, and stare at it a little bit and then look at this next picture, you can see that um, this is a self-portrait he did at the same time. 
Does everybody see his face in there? Yeah. That's oh, just kind of cool. So this, he did this portrait at that same time. While he was in New York at this time, uh, he began to work for the New York Herald. So this is 1898. And he continued to work for newspapers uh, for quite a few years. And this began to lead to assignments to, to paint illustrations for books that were being published in New York, often by the same publishers that put out the newspapers. In um, 1901, his parents moved back to Chicago. So he opened his own art studio in New York City at 393 8th Avenue, which is just on 30th Street, two blocks south of uh, Pennsylvania Station. So it's kind of cool. He's, he's now uh, fully on his own. At this point, uh, at the turn of the century, it's like 1902 now, he's 30 years old, and he's fully established in New York City as a promising New York City illustrator of magazines and newspapers. And he also painted landscapes and did commissioned portraits as well. In 1903, his father became ill. And remember, when he was born, uh, his dad was already 41 years old. So J. Allen St. John closed his studio, his closed his whole business, which he had spent his life working towards, moved back to Chicago to live with his parents and help his mother take care of his father. After one year, his father died in Chicago at the age of 72. The artist then started to work as an illustrator for Chicago-based publishers of newspapers, magazines, and books. In 1905, he illustrated A Face in the Pool. This was published by um, McClure Company of Chicago, and this was the beginning of a long and productive relationship with McClure. The same year, while he was in Chicago, he met his uh, future wife, Ellen May Munger, Oddly enough, he was taking a course in uh, typing, which at that time, you know, it was a kind of innovative thing to have a typewriter rather than to be old-fashioned drawing with a, a quill pen, writing with a quill pen. So it's, it, it's something kind of neat, like when you and I were taking classes in typing, it was meant something completely different than uh, in 1907 or something to be taking a typing class was like you were taking the, a modern computer machine, you know, it was like a really cool thing. And uh, so she was uh, a secretary at the school, and she was um, 21 years old, and he was at that time 33. And they married in November 11, 1905. In 1908, he and his uh, newlywed wife uh, moved to Paris, and he began to study at the famous Academy Julien, where he worked for two years. In 1912, they returned to Chicago. And um, while they were in Chicago, his mother died. She was really beloved by a lot of people and had done so many portraits and stuff like that, so she was a, a significant figure. But after her death, he and his wife moved into this house on um, 3 East Ontario Street, where Doug Ellis just recently had an uh, office party, I believe. And this is called the uh, Tree House. It's a, a spectacular building that was built as... Um, supposed to be just used for residents, for artists that had north light, skylights, a little garden in the background, and only artists could live there. And it, um, they, they had no children, but they stayed there the, less, the rest of their entire life, the two of them living in this house. I think one thing that's kind of interesting about bringing, just to bring it up, is that if you think about it, um, he's an American through and through, but, um, and his ancestry is, is really typically American, but... Um, he literally, up until this point of his mother's death in 1913, 
Uh, he spent his entire life really uh, uh, studying at uh, a traditional, um, had originally come from Italy, but was rebuilt by the French king as the French Academy. Um, but it, it, it goes back to um, Correggio, the um, how to how to to be a realistic painter is a typical training that was handed down um, literally for centuries. And he, he he moves into an artist studio and spends the rest of his life there. So he literally lived in an art academy his entire life. And and there's no other artist um, in in the world of illustration or popular culture that has anything even approaching that kind of a strange um, orientation, you know. Um, in 1913, he did this cover for... Um, the Cave Girl, and then in 1916, this is uh, The Beasts of Tarzan, and then The Son of Tarzan. These books were wildly popular. In 1917, he was, this is the First World War, he's already 45 years old, so he's way too old to serve in the military, but he did do um, really beautiful um, things to support it, like the Liberty Bond posters and recruitment posters. This is also the year that he officially began teaching at the Chicago Art Institute himself, where he continued to teach for uh, many decades. He, uh, one of the things I just talked about in terms of his uh, a painting of, of fantasy adventure things is just uh, his incredible compositions. And um, this is kind of like twisting, t- turning um, composition is, is really typical of him. And you see the backgrounds sometimes are, are more um, uh, abstract in a sense. They're, uh, they're, they're almost like a stage setting for something dramatic occurring in front of it. A part of everything in, in J. Allen St. John seemed to match the uh, dramatic and soulful, inspiring uh, adventure stories of Edgar Rice Burroughs, of a hero trying to conquer a um, strange and exotic or fantasy-type world. Together, um, they really blazed a a trail uh, in popular culture that led the way for things like Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon later on, Prince Valiant, Superman, even, you know, Blade Runner and Star Wars and stuff, you know. Uh, Thuvia, Made of Mars. One of the other things just to bear in mind, we always think of everything as herbocentric or something, but... uh, he was, uh, J. Allen St. John was all throughout his life also working for slick magazines like Red Book, Green Book, Blue Book. It's, it's uh, after having spent so much of his life just in life class in academic uh, training where you just are studying uh, nude people uh, of different sizes, shapes, and ages, you really uh, are concentrating on the anatomy and the musculature and trying to understand just how the body is put together so that you can um, eventually, the, the goal is to bend it to your will, you know. And uh, this included animal forms also. They would, you know, have plaster casts of all types of animals and uh, actually corpses of animals that they would draw. But um, he, you can really tell that he's twisting all of the knowledge that he has acquired of, uh, from observation to his will. And so you can really see it in this type of composition that it's um, reality bent to um, his uh, artistic will. His figures uh, seem to toss and turn in, in, in exciting ways for us. 
and again, there's just this empty background, but like the tail that's in this um, tiger uh, really isn't just a tail. If you, you can see that the entire composition is happening within a rectangle, uh, but it's going, it's just swooping like as a, a musical um, uh, or a, uh, like a dance act, a dancer on a stage or something. It, it continues throughout the entire composition, you know. And that's the kind of uh, dramatic movement that um, it, it just makes you come, makes the whole composition come alive for people, and it just seems um, fascinating in a way. I don't think anyone's ever said this before, but he's also kind of the forefather of, of this dinotopia type imagination of what dinosaurs look like, and uh, it really seems like he's um, you know observing these creatures in real life and. Um, Making, bringing them so they seem so alive, you know. So this is a Slick magazine that he's doing, 1924. And of course, you know, he was uh, making a, a tremendous amount of money. Um, and uh, the house that he got was kind of supplemented for artists. So it was like he had low overhead. He had a great teaching job, many students, and he worked constantly, you know, without stop. So it's, it's a pretty good life in some respects, you know. And unlike um, the, the sort of trauma that so many uh, American artists typically go through, you know, with Pyle and, and Dunn and, and NCYF and we were talking about with uh, the Brandywine School and stuff, the idea was trying to find for them uh, an American um, way of uh, being an artist that was just as wholesome as this uh, European tradition, but J. Allen St. John was 100% the European tradition and wasn't really grappling as much with the concept of um, um, the contrast of America versus this academy. He really just was an academician. He could, uh, at this point, it's more than just like making a composition or making swooping things, but just seeing how the body weight um, handles volumes and to show whether something is heavy or something is light. You can see in this thing like the, um, the horse is seriously struggling to carry this heavy man over a very steep thing. And you know when you get on a, a hill and you're getting up a tall hill or a mountain, it's incredible. At some point you're like, I can't believe this. How do you even get up this hill? And this is a, like a horse just struggling and that's, it all comes, apart, comes across through the composition uh, and the way in which the figures are, are designed and just the knowledge of, the, of the, the way in which the horse would have to uh, struggle to carry a huge weight. And it's just an interesting counterpoint of a completely light downhill movement of a, of a you know, horse-like creature. It's just, you can just see the sort of mastery that, that this artist has between these two uh, really opposing um, activities, you know. But I'm going the wrong way. So um, here's this writhing, struggling, <laughs> monstrous python. And there's this element, because he's so in control and can do whatever he wants with these um, characters, that we lose sight of the fact that uh, this is actually extremely cartoonish in a sense, because uh, it's absolutely um, uh, 
fantastical composition of something happening, but we look at it and think it's convincingly real. But in, if you were to see his original sketch for this, um, aside from his uh, skill of observation, it's just the composition is practically like Popeye you know, fighting with a snake or something like that. It's just really um, cartoonish almost, but in the best sense. In 1928, the artist um, was teaching a painting class at something called the Businessmen's Art Association of New York City. And this is a short film that they had made that shows J. Allen St. John at work. These are professional artists that uh, work for newspapers in Chicago, and they wanted to be able to get to work together and work with training and hone their skills, but also to not have any amateurs around them that would slow things down. So these were all highly skilled artists, but they wanted to be able to work under uh, academic training. So uh, they could, um, have picnics, they would go out and study. Uh, this is him himself. So this is a student, and he's working away. And he says, hey, let me take a shot, let me show you what was going on. And he takes the guy's brush, and uh, he starts to feel the, um, the hairs on the end of the brush for a second. And then he goes, yeah, this one's shot, dude. And he throws it away. <laughs> and so you want a brush that has some life in it, right? And so now he's showing him the gesture that's in here is pretty important. You see how the strokes he's putting on are really uh, like vibrant or something, but I've tried to identify some of these artists from their work and it's, it's utterly impossible. But, but there was so, it was, Chicago was the second largest uh, publishing center in America at the time, so there, it was probably the second largest number of artists also. And this is a group photo, and J. Allen St. John is sitting on the far left. But there's something interesting, because at the end of the shot, he gets up and um, you can see he waves everybody away, like we're taking a studio portrait of everybody. But he's, you can see that he's very commanding, very tall, and um, just a very powerful guy. Like they're just following him like uh, the mother hen or something. So it's a funny document, this. It really captures his spirit, I think, even though it's, it's crappy kind of film. During the years of the Great Depression, um, all the main illustrator, mainstream illustrators and publishers were suffering hard times. And so this forced all of the top-paid artists to begin to work for uh, whatever work they could find. And one of the more um, um, survivable formulas was the pulp magazines because... They didn't rely on advertising or subscriptions. It was just cheap uh, newsstand sales. So they actually, um, it was a good place for J. Allen St. John to start working. And uh, the, the pulps that were being produced in Chicago would be his natural place, like Weird Tales and Magic Carpet. And his uh, illustrations nowadays for Weird Tales are, are of course, very sought after especially if there was like a Robert E. Howard or something like that going on. You know, our, our, we're always, I don't know if we're as proud of ourselves as we should be, but a lot of these great paintings are preserved in our community of collectors. This one also is, is preserved in someone's collection. And, you know. and so when you run into people here at the, at the pulp shows, you, you, never, you should be very polite to them because you never know what they might have at home. <laughs> 
Tarzan and the Leopard Men from 1935, The Swords of Mars, 1936. When the artist uh, painted this cover for Weird Tales, he was at the retirement age of 65 years old. And if anything, it seems like his artistic power has only become stronger. During World War II, as younger artists um, were, drafted for mil- were drafted for military service, there was a shortage of illustrators, so J. Allen St. John began to fill in this gap, working for um, a- another Chicago-based magazine publisher, was Ziff Davis, that produced Amazing Stories, Fantastic Adventures, and M- Mammoth Adventures, Mammoth Western. And these all kept him really busy, all during the war years. This is 1944. When this was painted, he was 72 years old. I'm approaching 72 years old myself, and I just don't feel as strong as when I first started the way that he seems to be. This sensational cover is contrasting the warm flesh tones of the Egyptian queen with the icy blue, cold touch of her deathly mummy friend. This is really unlike... I mean, he's still evolving as an artist, you know, and doing creative things. Aside from his fantasy art, he could also, you know, do um, regular hard-boiled detective stories that were popular after the war. Try to see these. This is is all printed on crappy pulp paper and everything, but the gray tones are are incredibly masterful that someone would attempt even to do that in a pulp with this vast distance and the, the darker contrast in the foreground detail. Could this really be the work of a 72, 77-year-old man? <clears throat> but this painting is every bit as powerful as his 1913 art for Cave Girl. In his later years, he worked for Mystic Magazine, Fate, and Other Worlds. This cover reminds me of the famous image of Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel of God floating and giving the touch of life to uh, Adam. The artist continued to teach his, uh, life classes and illustration at the um, Chicago Art Institute and the American Academy of Art in Chicago into the 1950s. J. Allen St. John died at the age of 84 in Chicago in 1957. And thank you very much. Uh, I really truly mean it though. Thank you really much. I, I, I can't probably tell you how much it means to me to be able to um, share my feelings about artists with everybody and to hear you actually clapping about it. It's just great. So anyway, anybody have any um, questions they give a crap about? (laughs) David, it means just as much to us to hear an expert bring these people to life. Thank you. Oh, wow. Thanks, man. All right. Well, what's up? Well, I feel the need to point out that, that I'm sure you're aware of this, that a lot of those covers were uh, designed completely by him, including the topography. No kidding. Yeah, so the composition uh, oh. the composition was complete. I mean, he wasn't just composing the painting. Uh, he designed the topography. As no well. kidding. How'd you find that out? It's just... It's common knowledge. Wow. Wow. I don't know how common it is, but I've just been... Yeah, you know, I've been collecting stuff wow. for 40 years. So. <laughs> you know, that also signifies is that, because I don't, I don't, I don't want to speak for you, but my dad's generation, the artists were, uh, I would say, treated like and uh, Unlike today? Well, I don't know. Maybe they're real respectful now. I don't know. I don't really don't know. But they were genuinely treated like and they were endless. Like the guy, uh, 
uh, William Ziff dragged dad in at one point. My dad was illustrating, you don't know. But, uh, and said, you know, let me show you how to paint. And, oh, and dad said, uh, uh, I'd rather you show me how to be a millionaire to go around telling people how to paint. <laughs> but, and, and he goes, that's very funny. And then uh, he, he left and uh, uh, he said to his secretary, I'm never working with that guy again. And I'll never see Norman Saunders again. <laughs> and he did. He never worked with him again. But uh, anyway, the, the idea that there was a time where an illustrator could say to a publisher, you know what would be a good thing if we changed the lettering? on That just shows you how um, beloved he was as an artist. In the, the, it's inconceivable to me that uh, anyone would have listened to my father saying how they might change anything about the text or the, the typography or something like that. It's, it's in, inconceivable. So They had wide training. I mean, it wasn't just painting. They, they knew topography. They knew design. Oh, oh, totally. Dad studied lettering. Baumhofer was a great letterer. Yeah, they could do anything. But the fact that anyone would listen to them is inconceivable. But it just shows you how much he really was probably a father figure for people and stuff like that, you know. And but anyway, Chicago is a lot better than New York, I think. Yeah. The, um, the, um, the Warlord of Mars painting that you showed, where, yeah. they're, where they're all holding the swords up, okay. um, he painted that logo right on the painting. And after it was returned to him, uh, he painted it out to make the painting complete. Oh. And if you look at the original, you can still see hints of the original. Wow. I was wondering about that also in terms of the, um, the, the tiger tail coming down, is that the lettering goes like this, too. And I was like, well, that's kind of, that's a great coincidence. I don't know who did that, but it never occurred to me it was him. Wow. What's up? There's a famous story how he got his original bag. He didn't drive, and one of his friends called him up and said, you better get down to the clerk. They're throwing out all your paintings. So he hired a cab and ran down to the clerk and started grabbing his paintings. And at one point, they said, that's enough. You're done. That's how his painting survived, was him going down to the studio on the day they were throwing him out from McClure. Mm-hmm. I didn't quite catch what you said. The selling thing. McClure was just going to dump his paintings, and he rushed down there and got them. Oh. <laughs> We've all heard that one, too, right? <laughs> What's up? Think about dinosaurs. Uh, was there ever any connection between St. John and the, the dinosaur? Right? Charles R. Charles Knight. Knight. Yeah. Well, I think they're both from Chicago. <laughs> what else can you say? I don't know. Well, Knight famously did the work for the, uh, for the Met, right? Yeah. I didn't know the timing of the whole... I didn't yeah. know what Knight was paid. They're about the same period. I, I, I'd have to look at the dates. You know, one of the other weird things that was happening during that time was, was the development of museums and stuff. And I think after Theodore Roosevelt, there was a great more interest in natural history museums and science museums all across the country. Um, so there were artists that were hired a lot uh, that were great, great illustrators that were also producing dioramas and things like that at natural history museums in Chicago and New York and Washington, D.C., I don't know if there's any connection, but it's funny that it's happening during the same time period yeah. from the 20s to the 60s. All right, thanks a lot.
You've been listening to a Pulp Event podcast, brought to you by the PulpNet, your link to the online world of the Pulp magazines for over 25 years. Learn more about the Pulp magazines through articles, blogs, bibliographies, links, over 100 episodes of this podcast, and much more, at thepulp.net. Also, look for the PulpNet on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you for listening, and keep reading the pulps. This Pulp Event podcast is copyright 2023 by William P. Lampkin. All rights reserved.